Sobriety, welcome to the podcast, you beautiful, beautiful creature. Live from Miami, Florida. You better have you better be in Miami, Florida with a tan like that, huh? Yeah, exactly. I'm definitely in Miami, Florida. All right. Well, it's nice to see you. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. You got me on a day where the sun's down, so it was really easy. It was two o'clock and it's sunny in Miami. I'd be like itching, like, oh my god, the cornerstone of my sobriety is my tan, so I need to be out there working on it. Okay, is and that I, is that what joking. you uh, is that the trade off? Because is it true that like you don't really cure your addiction, you just replace it with something that just doesn't destroy your life as well or as bad? Okay, there's a much more. Listen, I would tell anyone that's just coming into recovery because I get all these new guys that are coming in, and especially we're in some really auspicious times right now with the pandemic, and there's a big mental health component, even for the most solid people that don't have any addiction issues. There's been eight months of uncertainty and you know, oh yeah, I'm rolling with the punches. It's easy. It's not easy. There's a underlying um, angst to people. There's misinformation and people are, we're talking in terms of they say, and I was like, who's they, you know, some say this, some say that. So that's all leading to people's anxiety to be more um, elevated. And then you factor in, in my world is that the addiction piece is off the chart. I've never seen it more busy than where it is now. And again, that has a lot to do where families are being kept together. You know, we can't, uh, we have to keep our own little version of a bubble going on. And as we go back into the second wave right now, here, we're going to clamp down again. Sales and alcohol in Canada are up 24% across the board in the last eight months. So a year ago, we're 24% higher. Well, that's kind of interesting. What does that tell you? Well, we're self-medicating a lot. All the pot dispensaries, everything that's going on, they're jammed. And the government knew damn well. The first week of March, when this started, excuse me, the second week of March when this started to get real, and I'm going to use the Ontario figures because on the national news, they had the health minister from Ontario fielding questions. And they said, are you going to shut the LCBOs? You're going to start selling liquor. And she flat out said, 20% of our population is alcohol dependent. Well, that's a pretty damning indictment. That means you have a pretty serious alcohol problem on your hands. But stopping selling it at this point in time would be a detriment. It would guarantee the hospitals would burst because alcohol is the only drug that will lead you to a hospital. If you're detoxing from a serious alcohol problem, it can kill you. No other drug can do that to you. People are like, oh, I'm coming off of cocaine. It's pretty banal, but detox from cocaine or crack or, you know, heroin is a, and any type of opiate is a very physical sickness, but it will not kill you. It'll make you very uncomfortable, but it will not kill you. So all this to get back to your question on whether or not you transfer your addiction, you come into your recovery. I remember thinking, oh, my life would be different if, and this is, I don't know anything about why I'm doing, why I've been self-medicating for 25 years. I was 39 years old when this revelation came on to me, but I'd been drinking and using since I was 14. So I remember thinking, well, um, all I have to do is stop drinking and using. Fact. That's right. The price of admission to be in recovery is an abstinence-based life, meaning abstinence means no mind-altering substances. But what they don't tell you and what you learn afterwards is that addiction works on a very different sphere, all right? Because we are gaming addicts. We are sex addicts, porn addicts. Sex and porn, two different things, same lead. 
um, shopping uh, and men's primitive, primitive brain. We're all guilty of this. Like men, when you, let's say I'm looking for a car and I'm going to start searching it on the internet and taking different angles and looking and reading. That's our primitive brain hunting. That's my reptilian brain looking to hunt and to gather and to execute a deal and to commit, you know, to do it. There are some people that spend a lot of time posturing before they execute. Some guys just point and shoot. They keep, just do it, maybe because they have the economic means, but it's the reptilian brain in you that's doing that. So if you think you can overthink that, you can't. And for when the transfer happened, in my case, I weighed 128 pounds when I went into rehab. Um, you know, I'd been on a steady diet of cocaine and heroin and uh, <laughs> wasn't eating very well. Shocker. And one year later, so that's January of 2000 of, uh, 2004. One year later, January of 2005. Okay, so now I'm 208 pounds. I've gained 80 pounds. Um, did I transfer to food? Yes, definitely. Um, I used to like eating milkshakes like three times a day. I didn't care what was in. Never looked at calories or anything, but I definitely saw an uptake in how I was using food to soothe me. And again, that's just your body or your, we, we soothe each other, gambling addicts. And, you know, when we talk about process addiction, gambling, sex, um, shopping, uh, food, um, all of these things, even relationships, your brain is fed in our brain, our housing of our head, head here. Norepinephrine is a naturally existing chemical that's made in here. I can't buy it. Norepinephrine. So, you know, in the, Oh God, I'm looking for my fix in the, oh, most people will tell you that it's the buildup, the ritual of getting there that you don't really care. A gambler doesn't care if he wins or loses. It's the high he's getting while chasing it. It's the roller coaster, right? Yeah. It's yeah, that, and that, the same that thing journey. with food or whatever. And so, Even so, would you you know. so has mm-hmm. your has so your hunger, your innate hunger, this this huge desire to consume, or it's mm-hmm. because maybe you're just a beast. Maybe you have this thing in you. It, it you can't say you can't turn it off, right? There's no amount of therapy that's gonna allow you to subside the, the tremendous hunger you have within you for whatever it is. You just have, you have funneled, from my bro science perspective, you have funneled your, your hunger towards a different prey, a different kill, a different high, but one that, that is, is beneficial to others and yourself versus one that is destroying you and everything in your, on, your, on your path, right? Good question, but there's a two-sided thing to that. Um, I've never had an addict in, that's coming into recovery that doesn't have low self-esteem and they're self-centered. That's your starting point. So that's like, even though you're well-intentioned, you're, uh, you're a friend, you're friends with someone that's struggling. When you try and talk to this person about their struggle, they'll dismiss it. They'll minimize it. They'll deflect it. All right. But they don't want to confront it. And they don't want, certainly don't want you confronting them. So that often leads to what we call conflicting and enmeshed. We get in this situation where this dance is no longer happening and, it leads to the addict leaving to isolation. Most addicts in the later phases of all addicts in the later phases of their addiction are isolating. They don't want people to know how they're really living. So they're spending a lot of time by themselves and their addiction. So for me, did I turn it into a channel into something else? I would tend to believe it was everything I could do in the first two years was not to pick up and not to drink. That was the hardest mission I had. But moving through that, at some point you realize, hey, um, I've realized now that my alcohol and my addiction were complete symptoms to the greater problem, which was me and my behaviors and coping mechanisms led me to want to self-medicate to the point where I was not holding the proper job. I was not able to, any of my interpersonal relationships are greatly flawed. And I lived on fumes of 
you know, normalcy. Um, and I had a lot of loving family that was trying to help me. And of course, I didn't want anything to do with anyone telling me anything that remotely sounded or looked like the truth. <laughs> they had to be amputated from my life. And again, I kept this narrative. And I, I look, people are into this. I have friends of mine that are not in recovery that I knew from a young age, and they're still driving this one narrative point that this is how they are. This will never change. And this, and it's sort of sad as we, I'm in my mid fifties now, and I'm watching some of my friends sort of regress into, uh, you know, like highly jaded, uh, life didn't turn out the way it was supposed to. Um, really interesting to watch people that don't have a recovery to stand on. And so, so do you I think feel, that recovers that. sorry to cut you off, but do you think that it's almost a gift that I, I call it the hunger, okay? That your hunger was so, so big, let's say, that it had to be addressed where you had, where you eventually hit a wall. It was either death or recovery, right? right. Yeah. But, but I would say the vast majority of the population have the same sim- symptoms and need for coping mechanisms, but their mm-hmm. hunger isn't so big. So they never hit a wall that hard. And Correct. so the, in, their entire life is coping mechanisms, whether it's food, whether it's a little bit of alcohol, whether it's a little bit of weed, whether it's uh, toxic relationships, shitty job, just consistent, consistent throughout, but never has too many peaks or valleys. And so, so there's no real stimulus for a massive change like you. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, my change was rock bottom. I had run out of, my mother, rest her soul said, you'd run out of exits. There's nothing left, but there's beauty in that, right? That was, that was your saving grace. When, as soon as I had less choices other than one way out of here, like you, you're at the bottom, you're not getting the next stop is death. And when you leave that place and it's with little fanfare, uh, like I like to say, there was a small spark of hope. Uh, my family had written me off. Uh, I had, you know, other than my mom, who said, like, listen, you pissed me off. You you disappoint me this time. And I don't know where, where you're going to end up because your family has officially shut you down. My family had finally got help, brought in interventionists to tell them, there's no narrative from this kid's mouth. The sickest person in the equation no longer dictates any of what's going on. That's the first thing. Like families realize, oh, you know, Junior's got a problem or my boy's got a problem. Well, you all have a problem if the addiction will permeate into everyone else's life. But for me, like you say, the hunger, it was, I knew I, could, I, I, I would sit there going, I grew up with pretty well every advantage in the world. And you're, you're, while you're in this recovery zone, you meet people that have some seriously bad luck and bad shit happen to them. And you're watching them thrive and take way, way lesser resources than you had and thrive with them. And you start looking, I start thinking, hey, this guy can do this. What am I waiting for? Why is the offering I'm giving the world, this is the best I can do, you know? And I was like thinking, man, that is some serious mediocrity I'm offering myself. And another part is, um, I don't think I've failed more than I have in my recovery. I've maintained my abstinence and my, my sobriety since January 2nd, 2004. I haven't had a drink or a drug since, but I have failed in building myself to the person I am today many times. But instead of letting a failure define me, I'm like, have I learned from this? Okay. So let's look at the, the, the whole mindset changed. And I started looking at a scalable way to come out of where I was at to this darkness, if you will, and slowly started chipping away at it. I did not know I'd become an interventionist when I got sober. I did not know I'd be, uh, you know, a, a recovery coach, let alone a good one. Uh, you know, and I was, I was, it, it was interesting. And, you know, I got married in, in my recovery. I got divorced in my recovery. My ex-wife was instrumental in telling me, like, what are you trying to do anything other than this? She saw it in me before I did. 
And I, I will, people ask me, oh, my relationship is really good with her. And I'm like, you don't understand. Um, I don't think I would have motivated, my, motivated myself to this point. She kind of built it and said, here, you kicked me out of the nest and said, like, we're, not getting, we're not going any further than this, but you can do this. And uh, I, put, I poured myself into this, into what I call a craft and what I call, you know, the betterment of learning how to do my job. And I've become, you know, I mean, I've become very good at it. I've become extremely good at it. People call me like, oh, two other interventionists have failed. And, you know, the therapist, because my business is built on end users. It's built on therapists and doctors and lawyers. And they'll say, oh, you failed. A couple of people failed. Call Bob Marion. Bob Marion's going to come in. Yeah, I have a... Uh, the innate belief that every case is winnable and every case is going to go, the person's going to go into treatment. But again, you ask me where the hunger comes from. And I could say, I didn't believe in myself enough to start this. And as I started to, I, and there was, you start any new business or new venture, you're going to fail. <laughs> and you're going to either learn from the failures or you're going to say, oh, fuck it. I can't do this anymore. I, I can't, or you become, uh, I've used this word with you before, audacious. Like, it's like, it, nobody's, maybe people that are looking from the outside, outside looking in go, oh, what a maroon. How's this guy from Montreal going to become anything with himself or do this? And, and it's, that's human nature. Like, it's almost like, well, he made an attempt, it failed, he went home, he took his ball and he went home. Or you keep working. And that's what I did. I just kept working at it. That's and, really uh, the, the it, only it way. It's the only way to do it. And that, that, that limiting belief, that self-esteem thing, I think anyone who has that hunger is, mm -hmm. is innately uh, going against uh, the uh, fitting into the tribe, right? That's subconsciously ingrained in us. Because if, mm -hmm. you, if you're an artist or you're, you, you have the hunger, whether it, whatever, whatever it may be, you have this thing that makes you, by nature, different than those around you. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be taking in those, those vibrations, those those negative beliefs of the people around you who are doing their thing and belong where they belong. But if you're, you know, the flower around all the cactus, you're going to start wanting to be a cactus or thinking that mm -hmm. you're a flower and you're not like the other cacti is cacti. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, and that's, that's the, the pro and con of having this, this magic ability, right? It's, it's, that's why artists are, are oftentimes, you know, doomed because they, they have this tremendous talent, but they, they, they sink it into the ground and it usually uh, a lot of times ends very poorly. And it's yes. that, it's that self-loathing and self-doubt will rule the day. Yeah. Because you're, if, if you're not aware of, of your mind and not aware of these, these subconscious, the subconscious programming, that's a million years old and you just feel like this is it. And you're not able to productively create a positive narrative. Like I failed, but Next time I'm going to do it like that and I'll get to it faster and I'll do it and I'll keep moving and moving because at the end of the day, what got you to where you are is consistency is the name of the game. You can't try one thing, be scared shitless, oh. fail, and then stop. Like, where are you going to go back to the, the, well, the I, job? Actually, I tend to believe a lot of people take their one shot and they realize, oh, I fell flat on my face. I, how dare, you know, who was I thinking? And then there's the negative self-talk. Like, who did I think I was? How did I think this could be ended end differently? And I sort of took that as like, wait a minute, I'm a student of the game. I, I have to realize that, I, and I have a unique skill set. I went to multiple universities, got thrown out of every one of them. I was never good in school. Um, but if I look at the expertise I have, my, my experience became my expertise. Um, man, do I know how to be a proper addict? I mean, I've been there, done you that. You always gave a thousand percent. 
Yeah. Bob Marriott. Seven days a week. You've heard this expression from my nephews. It's go time all the time with Bob. And that's the way I worked. But that's the way you still work. Yeah. Because whenever I hang with you, you're on nine different phone calls at the same time. It's life or death every time. You're talking to Russia. You're talking to London. You're talking to Toronto. Yeah. That's that's the world of chaos that you live in, but you're bringing good. Yeah. And I mean, I bring a good, I tell people the way it is. Um, I tell people no all the time. Like I have boundaries like, oh, you know, my unicorn's different. You can't work that way. Well, I work this way and there's nothing. You've on the phone with me. It's your dime, but it's going to be my dance and I'm going to make it work this way. And I win them over. Uh, I have some people that say, well, we can't work that way. And I'm like, okay, best of luck to you. I'm sure you'll find someone that can do it. And then maybe a month or two later, all the employees that work with me always go, man, you played a long game and it pays. And I'm like, it pays because I didn't acquiesce to someone that wanted their unicorn or their snowflake to be treated different than everyone else. You need them to come in and to learn how this works. And I work a comprehensive, like a convergent type of recovery plan where the family immediately is involved. We're going to take your loved one over to treatment and we're going to start working with the family. So the backstory, because people go to rehab and 99% of people do exceptionally well in the controlled environment of a detox or of acute facility, acute care facility. It's when they come home that the shit hits the fan. Of course not. None of the other players in his world, the actors are all acting the same way. They haven't been taught what to look at, what to look for. They're walking on eggshells, all to the detriment of the person of concern that needs consistency, accountability, um, all the things that he's going to need to do to succeed in life. Um, you know, I look at it, I, I, my license was up in September, uh, Mary AM in Quebec and like that was paid in July. It's just the differences of being in a recovered world where I'm ahead of things and I've gotten ahead of things in my life. And that makes my life a lot easier. I was always reacting to, oh, fuck the bailiffs after me. Oh, fuck this thing. And that thing. Wait a minute. It was my responsibility. I was just ignoring them. You just weren't I was there. so focused you, on my you, addiction. I didn't look at anything else. Yeah, you were else. chasing someone else or something else. But a mm-hmm. very important uh, point because I, the only way that I've seen in myself, oh, classic Diet Coke, love that. Yes. And so it's, to me, it's shocking uh, how little um, weight is put on the people who surround you, right? Like you said early on, a few minutes ago that your relationship, you know, your marriage, she was, she was, she was pro Bob. She was pumping your tires. She was telling Mm -hmm. you what you can do. You were, you were in an environment where someone was telling you the things. Nurtured it. Yeah. Right. Like she was building you up to do what you needed to do. Um, my, my experience personally is that if you don't address the, who is around you in the room, let's say in your house, in your home, your friends, we are, even on a microbiological level, Mm. the average of the five people that we spend time with. Right. And the the idea of the snowflake, you know, uh, or the unicorn, like, oh no, you know, don't talk to them like this or don't talk. That is what created this. You're, Mm -hmm. right? And, And I'm sure every single time, I could be wrong, every time you go in and you have to deal with a case, the whole, everyone around that person is a fucking problem. Yeah. Like they're unhealthy relationships. Like I want to tell every family member, you want to read a book called codependent no more and see that you're, you're either pro-dependent, codependent, and you're in these relationships and our relationships with our loved ones are so flawed to the detriment of the person. We enable people so much that we disable them. 
And for the case of the person of concern that is struggling with an addiction, and let's say I have a 27-year-old who lives in his basement, but his dad's paying his phone bill. He has no vested interest in keeping his job or he shows up when he wants. He doesn't realize that, you know, what time he's supposed to be there at. How are you? He doesn't have to worry about it because he thinks, oh, my parents are going to take care of it. You know, and that's what they think. And then I tell parents, like, you're disabling your person. All you want them to be is an active member of society. How can they be if at 27, he's still getting his phone bill paid by you? And, it, and it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very two-dimensional approach where the, I guess the parents want them to look a certain way, act a certain way, but there's no uh, question or no caring about what's really going on inside or what, what you're doing and to that often subconscious. Angry. The person of concern that's struggling with their addiction is angry at the way they've played out. And they may have siblings that have succeeded with less or with the same amount, and they are greatly off the mark. And they start living in this low self-esteem and they're self-centered and I'm no good and fuck, I'm not like them. And I should be entitled to have what they have and without working for it. And it's really interesting to see how families, once they're properly coached to how I'm behaving and what's my part in this, they start realizing, man, I have been detrimental to it. Even if it was out of love and concern, it was too easy. We hadn't taught any resilience to the person. You know, if there's no resilience, if like, oh, I need a new car, yeah, go, 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 go pick out a car. There's three models you can have. Pick which one of those. I'm going to pay for it. I, well, that's I, great. I totally, I can totally understand because I grew up around a lot of people like that. And, and I know that on a subconscious level, you know, when I was 15 and I had to be at work, you know, on Saturday morning, right. did I always show up at seven 30? Like I was supposed to, did I, did, would I stroll in at like seven 59, 15 minutes late with my dad there staring me at the face and what the fuck? Mm-hmm. I, I guess I knew on a subconscious level that and not, not even, not consciously on a subconscious level that like, it didn't really matter. Like it was going to be what it was going to be. But I think at the same time, the fact that I had to be at work in, on, at 15 years old, uh, kind of g- it gave me something that I had to earn. Right. Uh, right. the first guitar I ever wanted, my dad told me, how much is it? I said three grand. And I, was, <laughs> I wasn't the kind of kid who really asked for anything. Right. And we said, what kind of guitar do you want? I said, uh, gold top Gibson Les Paul. Mm-hmm. And he said, all right, how much is it? And, uh, it was three grand. And he said, all right, you can have it. And I said, really? He said, yeah, all you have to do is go work. And when you earn that much, I'll buy it for you. you And and that's what got me going at an early age. And and I I guess I'm very, at the time, I wasn't very thrilled about it, you know, cleaning bearings on the weekend and and clipping wires. But I have a lot of gratitude that that I think it gave me a lot of, uh, I guess, strength or it, it gave me the ability to, to have some kind of responsibility at an early age. Whereas a lot I, of my- I mean, in your case, again, you were thrust into a lot of responsibility. I mean, the trauma of losing your dad at a young age, and then you guys, you could have gone one way or the other, and you chose the right way. You said, let me get into this. Let me learn the business. And then let me make some smart decisions about how to do that. A lot of people could have easily said, that trauma was enough to make, oh, I can't possibly live up to this and I'm just going to fail. You didn't, you took the baton, you ran with it. You, you did the right thing. Well, I don't look, I'd I, say I, 90% I, of people would have went into their addiction and said, you know, I'll piss through all the money. Who cares? Fuck it. We can't, can't live up to that. You didn't. I, I, I respect the hell out of that for you. And well, you did, you did what needed to be done. I appreciate that, but I don't even, I don't even see it like that. I just saw it as, okay, it's, Time to take over. It's time to put mm-hmm. away the music. You know, time to grow up and be a big boy. My brother mm-hmm. and I. And there was there was no question of, oh, I can't live up to what my dad did. 
the entire uh, the entire uh, thesis of what we wanted to do was to triple what he did right. as fast as fucking possible. <laughs> you know, as okay, he did this many trips, we're gonna do that many trips. He did this much sales, we're gonna do that much sales. You know, but it it was I, I can't say that this was. Oh, look at me. I made such a wise decision. I made tons of mistakes that almost bankrupted us and right. done in good faith. Like I was investing in rebuilding the business in terms of let's like supply chain and warehousing and the systems and all that shit, because I didn't know anything about cash flow. I didn't, I didn't know anything about, honestly, I didn't know anything other than selling and, and going out for drinks with customers. But I figured, Hey, the money com- coming in, I could spend half a million dollars on my inventory system. Because once that's settled, it's gonna, it's gonna increase Make our money ca- for me. It's gonna increase <laughs> our our cash flow and profitability. But if that's gonna bankrupt you getting there, then yeah. you can't do that. But so it it was paved with good intentions. But there were a lot of important things we learned along the way that made me first of all but, respect even more what my dad did and understood mm-hmm. his frame of mind of why he kept things the way he did. Because there's there's a lot of reasons and it makes a lot more sense once you're in his shoes and you try to fucking change things around too much. Mm-hmm. But the first two years we were drunk as fuck. We were on the road. Like <laughs> we, were, we were on the road, uh, eight months a year for the first two years, visiting suppliers and customers from like China to Niles, Ohio, you know? And at a certain point we just stopped because our, our bodies were given out. I was 25. No, I guess I was 28 and I look like I was 58. I looked fucked. I was, I was in the worst shape of my life. I felt horrible. I, was, I, w- I would come home on Friday nights and go to the bar and get drunk Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday, <clears throat> go to work, go for lunch, have more scotch, then go on a trip. And then that was two years of my life. And, and I was just like, whoa, got to get out before. Rinse, wash, repeat. Rinse, wash, repeat. Winch, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but all that to say is that when we decided to change our lifestyles, my brother actually started first. He needed to take a, he was over 200 pounds and he's not a very tall guy. And he, he was, let's say, living the dream, you know, on the outside. But really he was, he got to, he hit his rock bottom, kind of, I guess. Enough for him to, to say, I'm not doing this anymore. He's like, what do I love in life? I like waking up on Saturday morning and going mm-hmm. for a drive. And if I can't do that because I'm hungover, then I'm not interested in being hungover. Right. And then uh, a few months later, I, I kind of went the same route and it was cold turkey. And it was after a discussion with Nick Rose, your nephew, because <laughs> yeah. we were talking about leading, uh, well, we were talking about leadership and growth <laughs> and uh, leading by example. And you have to represent what you're trying to do. I right. couldn't be trying to change a business if I didn't represent the change that I wanted to be. So if I was drunk or hungover and very short with people and not following through and, and looking the part, but not being the part that disgusted me. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, I got to hit the gym now seven days a week. Yeah. I got to learn about nutrition. I can't Here's be drinking. Balance. I can't do <laughs> right that shit. the other way, <laughs> right? The other way. And, <laughs> and I, I'm much more balanced now about five years mm-hmm. later. You know, I do, I do have a drink here and there. I do mm-hmm. have an edible here and there, but I, 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 I am aware of how close it is how the beast can be awoken like i don't say that the beast is dead i say he's living in vermont and he's in a cage (laughs) but it's going to take a lot to get me to vermont but less than you think right 
I now tell you he's in that cage doing push-ups and sit-ups ready to reinvade your body with more strength and vigor than he ever had before. Absolutely. And to be honest, every time I do in overindulge, it, it, uh, it humbles me and makes me shake in my boots. Yeah, as you get older, you're a medicine ball. Like you don't bounce anymore. It's no, like, no. And, and it reminds me, it's like, it, that is not that like pick your poison, but don't pick, don't pick the booze one because that's the yeah. one that leads to very, very fucking ugly places. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to me when I'm explaining to people like in Canada, let's say 40 people a day die of addiction in Canada. Um, 85% of those 40 people die of alcohol or related deaths to alcoholism. So then there's another 13%. We're going to bring us to 98%. But those drugs are pervaded by pharmacies and the doctors are ostensibly the drug dealers. They're being abused or they're being over, um, over uh, medicated people. And we've anesthetized the whole society. And 2% of the illegal drugs are the fentanyl and the cocaine and stuff that actually kill people. Um, marijuana, never one of my food groups. It's funny. I never liked pot, didn't want to go near it. When I was asked, what do you think legalization is going to do? And I said, nothing. It will put money into the government's pockets, which is great. And let's get rid of the middleman. But what it also did was it showed, um, you know, the police have never rolled up on a domestic dispute where both parties were stoned. That's never happened. <laughs> but there's a lot of disinformation. So oh, uh, marijuana on the developing brain. They don't talk about alcohol in the developing brain. They don't talk about alcohol being a solvent and you're putting that into your body at 14 years of age and you're really hurting your brain. But they talk about marijuana like it's absolutely poison. Um, again, I live a 100% abstinent life. Never liked pot. But um, it's nowhere near as invasive as alcohol is. Alcohol is a really bad drug. And uh, it's absolutely abused day in, day out with impunity because, well, it's legal. And that's what they think. Um, they, I love when I speak in terms like that. They no, but say, it's okay. But uh, it, it's, it's really bullshit because that's really the catalyst to like, to really destroy everything you've built. Yeah. It, it, it can creep in and that's, it's the fire starter. It really is. Yeah. And that's why I, like I said, I, I, I enjoy, uh, you know, a glass of wine here and there, but for yeah. the most part, that's as far as I go. And because I know that the, the hangover, the behavior that I, that I engage in, like, it's like it, it ignites my reptilian brain. So throughout right. the hangover, I'm messaging people I shouldn't be messaging. I'm, you know, I'm watching way too much fucking porn. You right. know, I'm doing all this. But the, you can see the cause. Oh, and absolutely. you can see the effect it has absolutely. on it. But most people never think it out that far down the road. They Fuck, just, that's all oh, I, I think drunk. about, man. That's they all I think They minimalize the hangover, and let's move on. Rinse, wash, repeat. <sighs> and... I, I, I get so fucking depressed. And, and not only that, then I'll order the donuts. And the donuts, it's very funny. Like, I'll have a dozen at a time, and then I'll order a bunch of sandwiches and shit. I had a dozen Krispy Kreme last week. I did. Fucking right. But and it took 24 hours to eat them all. But Okay, very good. Usually it takes me 24 minutes. But, okay. But it has, it's very funny because I don't know mm -hmm. if it's, it's the sugar in both alcohol and the donuts, but I have very similar effects to my, the ignition of my reptilian brain. It's right. almost like the sugar creates some kind of inflammation or imbalance in my, you know, my microbiome or whatever it is. And mm. if I had too many donuts, I engage the same way the next day as I did if I drank too much. And, right. and, I, and I'm in the same kind of fucking loser state that I am. And all, these, all these things, look, you and I live in a, in a uh, we've created a work environment for ourselves where it depends on us and it depends on us believing in ourselves. Right. right. Because 
it, it's, it's a, it's a fickle thing when you're, when you don't work for someone and you have to create what you're doing, you have to believe 100% of the time that what you're doing makes total fucking sense. Yeah. And if, like, if now I, I have people that depend on me as the head of the beast, we have a whole bunch of services that are being articulated. Like, you know, yeah, I'm a sober coach, but how many of the coaching jobs that are happening right now in my business are run by me? They're not. They're run by very able people. Um, I manage all these cases um, and I have a case manager and they all report to me and, and I can speak to the client themselves and say what we're doing, what our objectives are and how we're moving forward. There's a clinical backdrop to all my, all my cases. Now I have a clinical director that manages every case that comes over our desk. So we're able to get really good results. But like you say, if I'm not the head of the beast, if I'm not on my game, uh, a lot of people are responsible for their homes, their mortgages and stuff like that. And I have to make sure I'm doing my part and doing it well. Absolutely. You know? And, yeah. but the good, the good part of that is that you start, you, you've built your machine, right. And you have, Correct. you have many commanders within mm-hmm. this, within this army. And that's, that's, I had to, because at one point oh. I was taking on so much for myself, my mental status. And like, I used to think you do an intervention and people see it on TV. Oh, it looks pretty banal. You're in everyone's garbage day in, day out. Yeah, and, that's garbage. Uh, in vibes. a case where I do 45 to 55 a year, um, you can't help but give a bit of your soul to every one of these cases that's trying to help. And at one point, I was, I was like, I always think of uh, uh, Jerry Maguire when he's showing him he's in airports, it's late at night, it's not a fun time to be. And I'm with myself and I'm listening to, you know, uh, I'm listening to, uh, to sad music saying, you know, this is my, uh, this is the certain hell I'm living 150 flights a year. I'm up, I'm down I'm barely home. Um, I'm just keep working. And that's the work I put in to get where I'm at. Um, two years ago, bought a place in Miami. This is where I'd like to be. This is where I got sober. And I started saying, I'm going to make better decisions and trust my generals and trust the people that I've trained and let them work. And they do. And uh, it's worked out fine. So, I'm not the center of the universe. So, for, you know, for a bit of time, I'm like, thinking, I'm the only person who can run all this. And then, no, I can manage it a lot better. And I work a lot more efficiently when I trust the people around me. So correct me if I'm wrong, but that's a huge step uh, for a, a recovering addict, or I think for anyone in general, is to have trust in others and not be obsessed with doing everything yourself or telling being a control freak. Right. Right. So that, 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 that's a huge, you know, like psychological upgrade that I'm, I think you could do a show just by speaking to like the six core employees I have. And they'd all say, Bob tells us one thing and and they'll all tell you, they feel secure in their decisions, but they ask themselves, is this rooted in common sense? Cause that's what I ask them all. Common sense will rule the day. Always. If you're complicating something that should be pretty easy, think of the least complicated answer. Cause that's going to be the right way to go. And would you, would you say that you've developed this skill set from, from your wild experiences of wheeling and dealing <laughs> like your negotiating tactics? I'm pretty sure yeah. you didn't develop them watching an online class. This no. was in the streets. This was yeah. making deals. This was, well, what, I think that I did an intervention a few weeks ago in Montreal and it was very lurid. Um, there was a young girl involved who had like a, a lot of personality issues and stuff like that. And then we got into the room and we had done the backstory with the family, but the shit comes out live. And I had, it was a woman case. So I had a second chair that was a woman working with me who works with me, Lisa Simone, great girl, um, very well trained. Again, I've trained her. Most of her training has been with me, but she said afterwards, like it was really, it was an emotionally heavy case. A lot of shit came out and she said, I'm so happy that I was sitting second chair and not first chair. And I said, why? She goes, cause you handle that with ease. And she goes, like, it was lurid. And she goes, you air traffic controlled emotions. That's what she said. You go, wait a minute. 
let's let the person of concern talk. And you're managing all these other personalities in the room. They're all, they're all wanted to get their pound of flesh in. And I said, no, no, we're going to, we have one objective here and try and do that. But it's, it's learned behavior. I've learned so much. Like there's a few things like, okay, the guy's been smoking meth for three days and he has a loaded gun. I don't think I'm really going to do that case first thing in the morning. <laughs> I'm going to let him peter out, make sure he's no longer on a go when we go and have this conversation with him. You learn that thing. And the dangers in our business, in a business that's super unregulated, my business, I'm a trainer for Ohio Tower and Associates. I, 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 I've, I've got a master's class, if you will, in this. Um, after years of working in the craft, working at my craft, and as I said, founded in fundamental, smart, safety first, and, you know, we don't do anything dumb. But there's a lot of people thinking, ah, oh, easy money, be intervention. And like, man, you can go in there and someone can die in a hurry. You can make some bad mistakes and you have spoiled this opportunity, this event from ever happening again because you've lied and you've the chicanery that you've used does not work. I'm the straight same person. And again, you have these emotions like you come in and people are all yelling and screaming. I've never raised my voice in an intervention. I'm like, hey, wait a minute. I can understand you're upset. You feel your ambush. These people love you. We're going to sit down. You're disarming someone that's screaming at you. You just watch the air come out of the balloon. But if I came in and got onto my high horse and said, you should vote. And, and I start, you're bringing the volume up. It's, you can't bring it down. If you start low and you stay low, it's going to, it's going to go smoothly. If you start getting into the same type of vibe and mentality, and I tell people about, you can, you can actually feel the room breathing, the, the emotions and stuff. I said, if you shake that up, you have no control of the room. And it's really, it's second nature to me and people afterwards go, holy fuck, how do you do that? I did an intervention for, with Dave uh, McMillan, the Joe Beef guy. He said afterwards, I drove home, we did it, it was a few hours. And uh, he looked at me and he said, how the fuck do you do this over and over again? So I mean, I got to go home, take a, bl- a warm blanket, lie on the couch and rock myself to sleep while I cry. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He goes, like, it's crazy. And I go, it was a pretty simple case today. He said, I have no idea how you can do this. Well, dude, you were... This is that, that hunger. You, you have a gift. You have this ability to operate like a Navy SEAL right. during extremely stressful, stressful situations. And I feel like that's when you're at your most present, your most peaceful. It's, yeah. it's like that's- I'm dead calm. Yeah, it's like, it's like that's what you are. are you? It's, like, like, it's like the calm energy of the yeah. day-to-day, I bet you fucks you up more than the crazy energy of an intervention. Yeah. The faster the world is turning for me is when I talk about my pace and my cadence, I'm going to run that room. No one's going to dictate the pace or cadence. It's going to be me. So no matter what's crazy in there and the energy is nuts, I can't explain it to anyone until you're in it. It's like, holy shit. It's like a shake and you can feel it. And you try and keep it light, keep it, move the ball and take it nice and easy. And I explain to people, like, I don't give a shit what comes out of the person that concerns mouth, how lurid, how much of a fight they want. You're going to be pushing your red button and you want to jump into this. You do not react on this day. I'm here to make sure nobody reacts. We're going to hear them and we're going to move. That's it. And it's amazing how fast you can do it. But I think it's, uh, I, I only think of it afterwards and I never think it's that bad, but people tell me, oh my God, it's horrific. How do you do this again and again? Eh, sorry. Up. Dude, you're, you're like in a, in a parallel universe, you could have been a surgeon or a jet fighter pilot because like that's, that's the, that's the, <laughs> or a the, cult leader uh, or, or a cult leader either. Maybe, yeah. maybe you are, but that's the, that's the, the, the genetic, um, lottery that you, that you have. And yeah. I think having what you have 
having what any, let's say, great talent has, it's, I think, the first 30, 40 years of life are figuring out what to even fucking do with it and to even recognize yes. that you have it. I was 39 years old when I got sober. I was 45 when I decided that this is what I wanted to do. And I realized that I was built for it. So 45 years old, I didn't, everything else before was an attempt to do something. Oh, I can make money doing this or doing that. And yeah, you're right. But um, when you find the purpose, it, it, the calling calls you, you find it. It was like I knew, but it was like, I, I've got to tell you, early on, I had my doubts. I was like, ah, you know, just this guy, I don't have an education from Montreal, really. And then it started to snowball. And I mean, once I had Rob Ford, so Rob Ford, every sobriety coach on the planet wants a bite of that. I kick at that can. They want a bite of that apple. And they went through a long, exhaustive list. There's no doubt they tried so many people. And he ended up taking me um, because I think that I didn't talk like any of the rest. I didn't, didn't hold his hand and tell him things are going to be okay. I told him, like, if you're not prepared to work at this, like, dude, you're going to fall flat on your face. And if you think people are laughing at you now, now that you've gone into treatment and you're coming out saying, I'm a, you know, oh, praise Jesus, hallelujah, I'm cured. I said, the only way you're going to be able to beat this is to have changed behavior. And they're going to take shots at you people and they're going to say nasty things to you and you're going to be ready for it. And he bought in. But it was... How hard, how hard was it? Because he, 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 he had a Chris Farley energy to him. Yeah. Oh, he was kind. There was such kindness in him. And like he was like a big... Uh, uh, very bright, cared about people. He really did. And, you know, here I am a very liberal, uh, very open, and he's like this hardcore conservative, but um, we got along well, but I was amazed at how everyone was a vote. It didn't matter if they lived in the ivory tower, they lived in a shack, they were a vote and he treated people that way. Um, I think he really liked being the mayor of Toronto and he really enjoyed that, but he, uh, he was a good guy who deserved a better outcome. Nobody deserves to die of this horrific cancer at 46 years of age with a young family. Nobody deserved that. And it was interesting because he said, you know, here I am a hardcore addict and nobody's giving me any respect. As soon as I got cancer, I got respect. He said, well, really the addiction was killing me faster than the cancer was, um, you know, cause he was, it was a bad situation. But as soon as he changed it, everything worked out. Do you it's really think, interesting. Do you think that kindness um, is a, is a common denominator or, you know, uh, with, with addicts, uh, you know, cause you mentioned that he, that he's kind and, and I know a few people who are, is, are, are they kind or do they want to be loved? What, what's there, the, I think that, I mean, there could be a people pleasing thing that maybe that makes them that way. Or a lot of times they rather take the shirt off their back to, to face their own issues and help someone that they deem needs it more than them. It gives them sort of an idea. I was here helping, but you can't, you can't, you know, they say you can't transmit something you haven't got um, or you can't help someone until you've helped yourself. So there's, there's two schools of thought. A lot of addicts live in the, you know, they have a higher calling helping someone that's this much sicker than them um, into, uh, into an easier frame of life. So you have to sort of understand that. I mean, I know when I, when I came into recovery, I had a, I said same sponsors when I came in. Like I do, you know, do a fellowship and a program. It was a program I'm still a member of, um, but I don't do business in that meeting. I don't do anything like that, but that is for my own personal recovery. And my sponsor didn't cut me any slack. You know, I, I remember telling him, oh, I've been sober for six months now. And he like stopped his car. He said, you've never drawn a sober breath in your life. You're six months of abstinence. Don't pat yourself on the back. You've earned nothing. 
He said, you have a lifetime of bad behavior. You think it's over in six months. And he was right because it wasn't. The best apology is change of behavior. It's so, pretty simple. So is it, would you say, because change behavior is a very interesting way of hearing because I, I, don't, I don't hear this stuff, right? Because for me, it's environment is everything. Because when you talk about people come out of rehab and then they go back to the exact place that created yeah. them, how do yeah. they stand a chance? Like, I know, who I, I know who I have to surround myself with. Mm-hmm. I know that if I'm going into certain environments, inevitably, like, I, look, I guess I'm, I have a strong head, but even on a, on a subconscious vibrational level, if you're in a stressful job for too long, one that doesn't serve you, or you're with certain kind of people, or you a lot of negativity around you, you're going to break. So how do you, how do you fucking avoid that? If you're still hanging out with hee haw and the fuck around gang after you get to rehab and expect to be okay. I I ached in the places I used to play. Leonard Cohen used those lines (laughs) and he was right because as bars I used to hang out with and some of the friends of mine I used to hang out with that were bad for me. I had to recuse myself from being anywhere near them, especially at night. And they all respected me. Nobody ever gave me a hard time. Oh, you're sober now. Nobody. Um, they respected the fact that I needed to change because it wasn't working for me. And anyone that says something to you that you're in recovery and somehow you're a lesser person or whatever, I consider the source, like, what are they saying to you? But I had to cut myself off from bad situations. And I, I like live music and I'd like to go to live comedy and I'd go to these shows and I would feel like in my first two years, I was like, I'm not comfortable in here. I have to leave. Uh, comfort was like, I don't feel good. I don't feel like I can laugh. There's a weight on me. And I'm so scared to relapse as I don't want to restart what I just did. And I got, okay, I got to leave. Now it's fine. I can go anywhere. And I've buried more than a few friends, like a half a dozen people I've known on my way up to this place that didn't change. And they were good people that never got the help I got or the opportunity I got to get better. And it wasn't my job to come out and say, I can save you and save you and save you. Anyone asks me for help, I'm going to help. No, yeah. just, anyone knows me. I will help anyone that asks me. And there's not, there's not a charge. I'm going to do my best to help you. That's that's it's, it's a it. necessary thing. If, if you're, if you want to be a new person or you want to be the true person that you are inside there, there have to be do- bodies on the floor. You, you mm-hmm. got, you have to get rid of people and it's not because they're bad. It's not because of this or that you have just, you've taken it upon yourself to, to look inward, to do, to do the work, to, to, to actively try to change your world. And right. if they're not doing that, they're in direct opposition, even if they have a friendly face and a nice yeah. smile. And something you said that, that really hit is because is uh, nighttime. It's almost like you can hang out with these people, let's say, let, during the day. Nine to five. Nine <laughs> to five. Like a job, go, go for a walk, do this, do that. Yeah. But after 5 p.m., that's when they, they turn into like the, the werewolf. It's like yeah. when the moon comes out. And, they and, only come out at night. Exactly. And, it's, and so I think when you think of Jekyll and Hyde or you think about uh, the werewolves, all these metaphors are really just talking about man's problem or uh, man's uh, constant fight with, with addiction and uh, inner demons. If you want to tell me what good happens between 8 p.m. and 3 a.m. in a bar, um, I will argue that nothing good Dude, happens. on my couch, nothing happens from 8 p.m. to midnight that is, or 3 a.m. that is good. I had to get a treadmill, you know, I'm hanging out with a lady that is, is, is deleting all opportunities of me being, um, shame, shameful. You know what I mean? So nothing really good happens there, but I I like that you said that because it's obviously 
a common denominator. Because I, mm-hmm. I, I think about things a lot. I think about it from all angles. I'm a, I'm a thinking kind of guy. That's what I do. But to hear you say it in practice is, is, is a great thing. Again, and that, like when people say to me, people that knew me before, and some of them, it's interesting. I was at one of my groups and the guy stood up and said, like, points to me and says, I knew Mary A. long before he ever got to this version. And if he can do it, let me tell you, I'm all in. <laughs> and it's like, I haven't done anything other than he's seen me live my life in a sober realm and to rise above it. I, I, I'm, it, it makes me feel good understanding that. It also makes me feel good to understand that I can be a help. Um, I'm no longer a burden. Both my parents have passed. Both of them, my dad, I was nine years sober when my dad died and 14 years sober when my mom died. And they went to their next lives knowing that the kid that had been the biggest concern had been able to turn it around, you know, had been able not only to do it, but to thrive in it. And that, you know, your self-esteem feels pretty good when you know you've done well. When my dad died, you know, that was going to be a major test of my recovery. It wasn't. It was probably the only time that my dad would have put his arm around me and called me son because he, we didn't have that relationship, but he would have been damn proud of the way I behaved that day, the way I was a strength and a pillar for my family. This is foreign to me. And I think my siblings all took note and said, Jesus, Bob, he's really doing the deal. And, uh, you know, that kind of made me feel an understanding that I had righted the ship um, that needs to continue to be righted because if I stop growing and we don't talk about that. Like we talk about time and where the space is. Growth is incredibly uncomfortable of your spiritual growth is, and your, you know, an understanding of a learning experience and the growth that can come from it. It's painful. It sometimes sucks. And you can either run from it, numb it, or you can accept it and say, let me take stock in this. Let's take a moment to enjoy the good and the bad times. Um, hopefully they're more good than bad, but the bad can teach you a lot too. Like a big mistake or a bad situation or bad behavior can teach you something and they're teachable moments. And for me to talk this way, it's nuts. Cause I never, I couldn't see past. I was very good at living in today. Cause I was thinking every day is Armageddon, you know, <laughs> every day is, could be the last day. And uh, today I'm taught that I have to live in this moment uh, and, and to try and not catastrophize of what hasn't happened and dread and concern. Like I got to roll with the punches and do it I, again. I'm a big proponent of being a gentleman through this and acting right. And there's some days when I'm not going to act right. I'm not going to do right. And hopefully that autocorrect, I always take like an elastic band and I can bang, it snaps back much quicker. Now the bad behaviors are, are few and far between. And I can sort of say, wait, I was wrong here. And I have to fix that in order to live my life from a clear conscience. I have to be able to fix those things that aren't good. And yeah, because then, there, then there's no weight that keeps compounding on you. None. And None I, I like to describe mm-hmm. it like, let's say you were driving a, uh, a 1995 Civic and you're on the highway. And if you're, you're not paying attention, you can end up in the ditch real quick. But, Correct. But your, 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 your new learned behavior, your, mm-hmm. your, your mindfulness practice, which essentially mm-hmm. is, it is, you're always yeah. holding yourself accountable and learning like mm-hmm. as you go. It's like you're driving a new car now yeah. and it has the lane assist. In, right, and so when you get right. out of the lane a little bit, it vibrates, and so before you're in the fucking ditch, it, 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 before you, you go into it, it's like, hey, you have an opportunity here. You might have fixed this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. exactly. So that's and, and and given that a lot of people live as they get older, they live in the resentment. They live in a situation where they rather live like, and, and you know, we didn't really hit all addictions are progressive. If they go and check, they will progress. They will continue to build. 
So when people tell me, well, you know, I, I still hear like, oh, I only drink wine. Listen, if you drink wine, beer, hard stuff, doesn't matter. Right? It's all alcohol. It does not matter. People think that somehow you get a pass or you've, I've been sober for 16 and a half years. Like you can drink wine or like beer, right? Like, no, <laughs> you can't drink anything and it's okay. And I can drink around you. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to turn into a pumpkin. If you drink, it's fine. Like it's, this is my choice. And you, you can, you can understand that. Um, it, it's just weird to me that we go through most of our lives trying to figure out who we are and we're putting out this image of who we think we should be. And then you find out your genuine self trusting that this guy can be okay. And you have to be able to let him flourish. And he's not perfect because we're all imperfect people and imperfect world having imperfect experiences, but he's going to be okay. I know the guy I turned out to be is a lot better than the guy I was trying to be. The guy I was trying to be was a fucking douchebag. Right? He was terrible. But it was and never the guy you, you turn. You love the guy that you turn into. Yeah. But it's never who you thought you'd be back in the day, nope. right? Your mind's eye will always tell you. Like It's like if you look at, a, oh, look, Mish, we're going to Portugal and we've never been, but let's look at the pamphlet or go online and look at the pictures. And then over there in person, we're in the same spot and it's not at all the same thing. It's not a bad difference. It's just not at all the same thing in firsthand present uh, in that, that type of stuff. And the same thing for me I remember thinking like the melodrama of early recovery because it's starting to dawn on me at six months of absence. Like, who am I? I don't have a fucking clue. I am. It was like an after school special of melodrama. Oh my God. Who am I going to be? Like, how am I going to be? How will I be able to, you know, how can I never have another drink again? All these scenarios are like flying All these bullshit narratives that are coming in from the way I, the way I visualize it is I, I I often think about the, the, the microbiome as our subconscious mind. And so mm-hmm. let's say for 25 years, your ecosystem that lived within your gut learned yeah. to prosper in the toxic environment that you created for it. Right. And so now it, it, it wants you. That's, that's what I think controls the brain, right? It's that, that's what this, this logo is here. It's the subconscious mind yeah. and the conscious mind. And if you're, whatever you're feeding it is going to control your brain to want more of it. That, right. That's the whole ethos behind this time travel thing. It's like creating a new world for yourself believing in who you are right. and, and moving forward. Believing in it and being okay with the belief that it's going to be okay. You know, it's oh, yeah, but, but isn't that the hardest thing? Because it's yeah. not like want the you, answer. you can't I want the map it out. Before I entertain it. it it's, it's a total faith-based thing. You can't plan it. You have no idea where it's going. All you can do is say, today I'm going to do my best and I have good faith that it's going to lead me somewhere great. And that is a tough pill to swallow for a lot of people. Exactly. Most people want the result before they've done an ounce of the work. They want to know what it's going to look like six months from now when they're not ready to put in the work. Dude, it's fucking impossible. I didn't know I was going to start this podcast. I didn't know I was going to sell my business. I didn't didn't know anything, but I just went a hundred miles an hour with good intentions Yeah, and it's led me like along this path. And again, I mean, if we don't allow ourselves that trust that it's going to be okay, but you have to take a leap of faith. And like, I use it as like this audacity, like how dare I think I can actually do this and articulate this. And it was almost like I was shy and I use words like scalable that sort of made it more palatable. Okay. I'm just going to start slowly and move forward with it. And at some point it started to take a life of its own. And I have to trust that the giant strides I was taking, were going to be okay. But people were going to judge it anyway. Like they thought, well, it's weird because you've become successful. 
And people think, oh, I remember him when he was just this fucking loser or this or that, or maybe I'm still a fucking loser, really. But I can't control what other people think of me because that's none of my business. Exactly. But, and that's their problem, right? That's yeah. their projection. That's them saying, But human oh, nature wants you to fail. Like, oh, can you imagine this guy thought he could do this? I, I feel- That's really where I live in now. I live in this, like my successful friends that have had success tell me the same thing. That people want to take pot shots at you, man. It sucks. You know, they want to be able to say, oh, how is he really doing it? Or if just somehow it didn't happen genuinely. And uh, Well, I, I, I feel like there's that. two kinds of people in the world. There's the people who are taking the leap, <laughs> having the faith in themselves and doing what they want to do. And they're, they are just positive and encouraging to everyone around them. And the mm-hmm. people who are stuck in their own hamster wheel, they're yeah. the ones who are going to talk the most shit. They're the ones who don't believe in themselves. They're just projecting mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. if someone talks shit about you, what they're saying is, fuck, am I unfulfilled? That's mm-hmm. what I hear. I, I, I don't even hear the words. If it's negative, it means that's, you're just telling me you're unfulfilled and you're disappointed in yourself. That, that's what I'm thinking. That's yeah. what I hear. And, and to me, I'm always amazed at the same people that I, you and I had like this serendipitous meeting on driving. It's a dark part of St. Henry. And I pull up on my black Harley and it's like, Hey, uncle Bob, what, where's this bike from? What's going on? It was like, I was like, Hey, it's good to see you. And I, I thought to myself, like, this is part of, I manifested that bike. Like I remember 15 years or 12 years ago, seeing that bike going, Oh man, I really want one like this. And then sure as hell this year manifested itself in my life in the form of this crazy deal. And I got it. And, you know, I recaptured some of that. And then here I've, I found that the people that enjoy my, my, my good fortune are the people that like the fact that I get to do these things and other people hate it, you know, like, Oh, he got himself a new car. I, I earned it. I worked for it, but it doesn't really matter. So how do you, and, how do you mute these people? Like, what do you do to mute these people? Cause that's what, that's what I do. They, they don't, don't exist to me. It's better for me than that. It's I'm going to answer all of this by the life that I lead. And if I go back to address all this negativity, I'm not leading my life. So I'm going to lead my life and I'm sorry if it upsets whoever it upsets, but I know I'm not doing anything to try and do it on purpose. I shouldn't have to apologize for success and nor should I have to apologize for my failures uh, we don't do either. You know, we just look at, oh, he's super successful. Or it came at a price. It came at a lot of work, a lot of those sad airports, a lot of like, I didn't think I'd have anything in the tank. And I remember being once I'm in Chicago and my office is rerouting me. They got to go to St. Louis to do a job. And I'm like, oh, I've just done two interventions. I have nothing in the tank, but I would take it and do it. And it was hard on me. And uh, when I get home, I was all to do is stay in bed for three days and order Uber Eats and, you know, just let's get through this, uh, get my strength back and my mental acuity back because it's nuts. But where I find it interesting is the human nature of people on the outside looking in at your life. Are, oh, we're guilty of it, I guess, to a certain. I wonder what's really going on with them. I wonder what's really we have that sort of narrative. But you don't know until you walk a mile in someone's shoes. Like, sometimes when I'm out and I see something that like during the pandemic, like people are really on edge. And I've seen people get mad at each other while waiting in line at the IGA to go in. Like, dude, it might've been everything for this person to leave their house today. And they're scared of the germs. And I have to be cognizant of that. And that's their struggle. And I can't impose my will on that. I just need to say, okay, I'm going to give you your six feet and I'm going to respect that. It's a mutual respect thing. I think, I think it's very important that you said that because, um, Everyone is, is quick to judge or quick to point the finger at someone who's not following the protocol that they're following, regardless, <laughs> regardless of what it is, without understanding that the person that you're talking to 
believes just as strongly as what you in believe their in their own yes. thoughts. And exactly. what led them here is not only their entire life experience, but thousands of years of genetic memory coded into this fucking person. There is no not many people are that it, not, not, most people are going, how fucking dare him? So they're now my will and my ego are making terrible decisions. Well, yeah, because their ego is challenged rather than saying, oh, they're like this because of 10 million things, maybe 10 billion, things. 10 million things that I might not know anything about. Yeah. Like, you know? I know what I believe, but I know that what I believe is a product of where I came from, what I do, what I watch. What, so I'm able to, to consciously disconnect from myself and or look. consciously make it, make an, make an honest thing, say, I'm not going to engage in this. I'm going to allow this person the amount of time and space he needs and say, yeah. Have on with your day. And that is you being an altruistic approach, maybe, or it's an approach that says, hey, you know what? I don't need to engage in this. There's going to be a cost if I engage in this behavior here of my own serenity, including this person. <laughs> it's not worth it. Totally. So just let it be. And when, I, when I'm getting into these interactions or potential interactions, the only thing I care about when I interact with anyone is that I want this to be mutually beneficial when we leave. You know, when we leave, yeah. I want each person to feel really good about this experience. Correct. And you can only do this if you're able to empathize and understand with the other person's perspective. Right. Oh, are they, are they fucking anti-mask? Okay, I can play that game. Oh, are they totally for the mask? Oh, I can, I can play that game too. Yeah. And I could be fun in the middle and I can make everyone feel good because in my books, there is no benefit to creating havoc or chaos. And in the days that we're living now, even though we're Canadian and like what's going on in America. And there are people that I know that are thinking that the, what I deem is the bad option is the right option. It's their plight. And I have to allow someone to think completely different than me. And that's the give and take. I can't use that against them. I can't turn into, I can't turn into a guy that's going to say that all of what I do, all of the situation that I live in, um, it, you know, I can judge them for having a thought that's different than mine. Now I'm just as guilty as they are. Exactly. And I need to allow that to be live that, and let live. Does, doesn't it? And it's really, uh, that's really the best way to look at it because the way I visualize it is we're, let's say we're empty vessels and whatever mm -hmm. environment we come from and currently inhabit in, we yeah. download and we become that. Right. But what, what do we all have in common? We're vessels. Who cares yeah. what's inside? Because what's inside the vessel is just the environment. So you can't judge anyone because you're judging yourself. Like, but I just like, I would rather allow someone their thought, even if it's diametrically opposed to the way I think and allow them to live in that. And I'll live, allow them to live in mine. I'm no better. I mean, I'm no worse. I can think this moral value that, oh, I'm better than it. No. I, th I think just, that's a sign that you're really not aware of yourself or the way the world works. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I think that we're still uh, in a very primitive uh, state of humanity. And, and uh, tribalism is alive and well in our society. Today. Yeah. Everyone believes that their beliefs are the true beliefs are, yeah. are the truth, you know, and that whoever doesn't believe what they don't, what they believe is, is, uh, is wrong, stupid, or evil. And I know that like yeah. the lady or the guy living in state X, if who believes, you know, um, paradigm X, if he moves to state Y for six months, he's fucking eating and breathing, uh, mm -hmm. paradigm Y. Right. And that's just the fucking way it works. Exactly. And that can change the way they're, they're looking uh, on, on, paradigm, on the opposite this side of the spectrum. Where it's a problem is if you do have a disagreement that it turns into a fight. And then you're wondering, what's the cost of living that way? Because it's heavy as far as I can see.
It's way too heavy. So I don't want to engage in that. I just sort of like, hey, um, I'm willing to get into a, you know, I don't even, it's so much on our social media feeds and our friends post both sides of the argument. You're more, more on the, the you know, the, the democratic side on my thing. But still, I haven't unfriended anyone. No one's gotten it because I haven't fought with them. I don't really care. Um, I'm in the United States today. Uh, tomorrow, the shit's going to hit the fan here. Apparently, I don't think much is going to happen. Maybe I'm wrong, and this is the last podcast I ever do. Uh, maybe um, it's the last one I ever know, do too. You know, so we don't know. But where I'm at is that I've had to learn the behaviors that I'm preaching today, and I've learned it through trial and error. And, and like I said, when you come into this thing and build. Uh, the brand is Bob Mary hired sobriety. And then what am I doing here? Well, I'm offering a service to help people um, that have addiction issues um, and trying to shepherd them out of there in a proper manner. That's tried and true. I do very well with my clients. I have a very good, you know, my retention rate and my rate of success. If they follow what we say, you get success. Um, if you start building your own narrative towards it, I don't, I only need this and that it's not a menu. Yeah. yeah. It's all in and you have to allow yourself no, to do No this. a la carte with uh, hired sobriety or I no, guess sobriety no, in general. No, it just doesn't work. There's yeah. plenty of companies that'll let you do that and you'll fail again and again and again, and it'll leave a bad taste in your mouth and it will lead you to think nothing works and become the, uh, the incomprehensible demoralization is the word that they use after you've relapsed multiple times. You don't even know what happened and how it happened. It, it leaves you in a bad spot and you don't want to get up and fight. And my world is if you fall down, get up. And uh, if you fail, get up. And you, nothing ventured, nothing, uh, nothing ventured, nothing gained. So, you know? so, so mm-hmm. what I'm getting, what I'm getting here and which is honestly the, the, I think the most important part of like sobriety or your job, because you're a sober coach, you get people sober, but, but the way that you live and the way that you think and your philosophy of life and your new learned behavior and empathizing with others and understanding situations, I I think that the key to your sobriety is not avoiding dark places. The key to your sobriety is creating a narrative for yourself that allows you to understand others, understand yourself not yeah. feel guilt and shame for feeling certain things, understanding what are trying to figure out where they come from and, and using this, this knowledge base that keeps updating your software is updating every day because yeah. you're challenging it. You're learning, you try and like, okay, you say fail here, there. It's not really fail. It's just like the only way to learn is to go get your ass kicked. Right. Yeah. And, and so you're, your ass handed to and you. And so you're, the constantly, best you're constantly evolving. So when you yeah. got sober, did you realize that perhaps your emotional intelligence when you were 39 was that of a 14 year old? <laughs> did my family tell you this? Yes. Because the, um, you know, the DSM, the, the, the Bible of our psychology and human psychology, it's a DSM five now, but addicts, apparently the moment the addiction takes over their lives. And in my case, I would have been 13 years old. When you come out of that, your emotional intelligence is that I was like a 13 year old boy when I came in here. So I was emotionally challenged. Um, stuff that should have bothered me didn't stuff that should have bothered me or shouldn't have bothered me did uh, because I had the wires were all crossed. Um, learning that and learning how to be raw. I think the hardest thing for any man is to be vulnerable and be okay with being vulnerable. I spent my whole life not crying and not feeling. And uh, now if I watch a sad coffee commercial of Folgers, I could get misty, you know? I'm like, oh my God, this is touching my emotions. I'm trying, well, I'm okay. trying to get there. I'm trying to get there because I was it, such a crybaby. I was such yeah, a crybaby until 12 years old and my dad used to say, all right, turn on the waterworks. Yeah. And I, I don't know, maybe that crossed the wires, but... 
But the reason I asked about your emotional intelligence is because right before we were discussing that every day now, you're in the now, you're, you're present, you're downloading, you're absorbing, and you're upgrading yeah. your system. If that's not happening because you're, you're drunk or I was you know, partying and fucking and watching all kinds of porn and doing all kinds of ridiculous things, it's like you put your, your growth on hold. Right. And if you can turn it off, which I don't think most people can, if you don't turn it off, it, you're never going to evolve. No. And I, I, like I said, I was a grown ass man with really the emotions of a young teenager. And I had to relearn how to be okay in that. And it, I didn't, I still never wanted you to see me vulnerable. It probably took two years for me to start being trusting that I could open my mouth and talk about stuff that was uncomfortable and be okay with it and not think everyone in here thinks less of me or stuff like that. But that's your thing and now. Would, like that's, that's your brand because right now yeah. you're, 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 you know, very, you're speaking very nice and this mm -hmm. and that, but you are like in the best way ever. You are savage. You're savage. Uh, I think <laughs> it's a savage. My, my family would tell me like, you need to tone it down a little. Um, and then I sort of found a happy medium where I think it was, I, I, I know I'm, a, I'm so much more calm than I used to be. I was so and, agitated all the time. And like, I have really good ADD. I talk about this all the day, all the time. My favorite color is shiny. Um, <laughs> I, I really like, I, I just try and I, I can't go out of my way. I would have wanted to, Oh, you know, here's this, let me show them how great I am. And today I'm like, I'm going to answer by the life that I lead and hopefully they can see some goodness in it. I know I had a few people that I've done some work for, that sort of came from the back uh, and the, the, the work I had done got back to the person that recommended me. And they're like, man, this family, oh, they're, they're amazed at how you work and how compassionate, how kind and how capable. And I'm like, hallelujah, that's the job. That's what we're trying to do here. So, and as we move forward, uh, I think that if you're going to try and get good at anything, whatever you're good at, you're going to have to be able to be raw and to be uh, humble and to be capable of, uh, of, of mistakes and genuine um, enthusiasm should carry you far enough uh, that you can sort of join that with being a pro. Um, and I think that that's where I found my, my sweet spot was once I was good enough to know I could do this and believe in myself and be able to transmit something I've got because I didn't have it early on and I definitely have it now. It's a big difference. And that's very profound because it doesn't only apply to sobriety. It applies to absolutely nope. everything. You <laughs> have to, you have to have this, you have mm -hmm. to have, have this in order to grow. You have to be able to accept that you're not going to be great at the beginning. You have nope. to accept that you don't know all the possible outcomes mm -hmm. and there's infinite possible realities. There could be a fork in the road that takes you somewhere right in the first 10 minutes of what you plan on doing that takes you on an entirely different course and on now a tangent, you know, on a huge up. tangent, but that ends up sending you on a road that, that, that develops a different part of you that you never planned. And it leads you to an introduction that, that leads you somewhere else. And then boom, the world happens. But to have this ability to fucking go and say, I don't know exactly how we're going to do it. This is my general plan. I believe I can do it. I'm like this fucking podcast, man. I, I don't know. I don't really know. I know I like to have conversations with people. Right. So well, how about this? Uh, how are you going to deal? You know, you hear this. It's been said in life many times, but I'm okay with the cards I'm dealt and I'm going to play the ones I'm dealt. I'm not going to say shit. I had three aces yesterday. What are they? This is shit cards. I'm going to say, I got to play these cards. Let's see where they go. That's that. My brother's line. Do what you can with what you got. 
hundred percent. That's what got me here. You know, I did the best I could with the limited abilities I had and I built on it. Well, that's what, uh, that's what every creature in nature does. mm -hmm. It it has what it has and it does what it can. We're the, the downfall or the, the, the downside of being this intelligent creature called homo sapiens with this developed brain is that we, it's like, we have so much imagination that it, it keeps us away from just fucking doing it. Overanalyze so much that we're paralyzed for analyze. Exactly. That's why, that's why sometimes I, I commend idiots because yeah. idiots have this part of their brain missing where they just do shit and don't think about it. Yeah. And they like they're real estate moguls or they're this and they're that I, and they're I living the fucking like, dream. I would, early on in my recovery and probably in the first year, the people I gravitated towards in the meetings, my sponsor told me like they're shining a turd, Bob. So good that they know the topic and they're making it really good and sound good. He said, be more concerned with the guy that talks from his heart. And it was like, ed, exit stage left. Here comes this guy. His name's Sandro. I won't use his last name. And I heard one of the most profound shares I've ever heard from a guy that's lived on and off the streets. And it was raw and it was good. And it was made people uncomfortable in their chairs. But I remember thinking, dude, he's got what I want. That was fearless absolutely fearless and kind and gross and scary and <laughs> but it was it was all of the things that i was like oh, i i lit up i resonated with me as opposed to the antiseptic very good answer safe low ball doesn't offend anyone set because if it's over processed yeah you, you you just don't like it if it's straight yeah. like the greatest artists have the ability to give you something directly from their soul and the right. artists who don't do that, you know instantly because you don't give a fuck and you change the channel. That's top 40 as opposed to an opus. You know, exactly. It's a big difference. Yeah, Bohemian exactly. Rhapsody, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know that- Bohemian Rhapsody, they were told by how many record reps, that shit will never sell. It's overproduced. You're, you're wrong. Shorten it by like, five minutes because it's seven and a half minutes or whatever it yeah. is. Yeah. But you can't fuck with the heart. The people know. And I think that- it's interesting as I look at brands, I, I, my ex-wife is a creative and she used to say, you can tell where love has been put into a product. And then you can tell where mediocrity has been put into it. And you'd look at love brands. There's a book called love brands. And it talks about how your mother used tide and you use tide because she taught you to love it subconsciously because tide was going to be the best one or it works like that. And you start seeing the amount of love put into something. And in, that, in this case, in my amount of, of effort and love put into my work, well, that transcends as I do my work. People go, wow, uh, this is a lot deeper meeting. This is a lot more to it. And that's when I know, like, it's not a single layered cake. It's a multi-layered cake. And you're offering all of that emotional and, and professional and capability and hope and everything's being served up in my job. This is what I'm going to do. They're going to come afterwards. I... The, one of the compliments I get most of is we wish we had called you first three years later, or we wish we had listened to you three years ago because clearly you knew what you were doing then. And I, I said, you weren't ready for it. You're ready for it now. We're going to do it right now. Not going to go live. Should Oh, my life would be different if this had happened or that had happened. That's the it's fucking now. bullshit. That is bullshit. Yeah. It's, it's now you're doing it now. It took that long to call you because <laughs> that's what you needed to make yeah. that call to call uncle Bob Marier. 
And yeah, I, I call I, you Uncle Bob. Answer just, the phone and get you know two barrels of Bob, as my uh, as my office calls it. Two you know, barrels they, of Bob. They'll hear me, and I'll just because I've, I've just had enough. I'm listening to the narrative. I have to step in and say, listen, we've got a good job to do here, and this is how we're going to do it. If you're interested in that, we can do that. If not, I wish you the best. And it's polite, but it's to the point. And they realize there's going to be one sheriff in town, and that sheriff's going to be me, and we're going to shepherd you through this, and we're going to get the job done. That's what you're. That's the whole point. We're trying to do change people's lives and change people from hurting well, that, themselves. Well, that's the business you're in, man. And you went yeah. to school for 45 years, yeah. and you're a yeah. fucking pro right out of yeah. the gate. I'm a pro now. I can't like now. I find it interesting that all of my all of my contemporaries and stuff, and and I really do believe I'm fearless and unabashedly serious. I believe if there was an Olympics for this, I'd be meddling for Canada because I damn well know how to do my job well. Um, and I that that also. You know, you're not getting the guy that's like, oh, you know, um, that's that's questioning any of his abilities. Me, it's like I'm. It's locked. It's loaded. Let's go. We're going to go do this. Do you? I give you that confidence. There's no backing up. I love I love the energy, man, and the love, and it spreads. And every person that you've helped, and all the yeah. interactions, it's yeah, like it's a ripple effect of the lo- work. Yeah, love is bigger than fear, and that's this logo again. It's like yeah. you, subconscious mind, conscious mind. You time travel. You you can yeah. touch the world. You know, you can do all that amazing like what you want to do you have to believe in it you have to start it. it's gonna be very difficult at the beginning there's not going to be anyone saying hey good job there's going to be Nobody. very low money there's going to be, be all a this, lot of questioning a lot of fucking runs. questions oh. but if you keep going and you keep getting better yeah and you just keep helping people shit is going to happen for you do, and it does do you ever look back or think about let's say the first intervention you ever did and say how that fucking amateur motherfucker well, how, what was he doing? Or do you say, hey, you know what? Rudimentary, but effective. <laughs> Rudimentary, but effective. Okay. <laughs> um, it was like the third or fourth one I did, and I got my ass handed to me, um, it like severely handed to me. And I went home, and I was, you know, I was married at the time, and I was like, well, who was I thinking? Who did I think I was? Like, how did I think I could do this? And again, like uh, my ex said to me, you know, get your head out of your ass. And, um, get back in your car and go back up there and you deliver what you know to deliver. Don't let anyone drive the narrative. You're driving the narrative. You think? Yeah. And I said, I got nothing to lose now because I'm working with internet. Went back up there and did it. And both of these people, it was a twofer. They're both sober today. This is 10 years ago. They're both sober today. I know that. And then I got, and then other people, like I've had other people in my life. Uh, I have a friend, another girl that was in my life that it came afterwards and she was instrumental on like, you need to protect yourself here. These people are latching their, their wagons to your, to your fame and to your star. And I was like, ah, it's not like that. She goes, no, like, you're the hitter and they're all just, uh, you know, you bet you're the, you're the cleanup hitter and they have come in. So to build my business, I had to bring people in and I had to allow that to happen. And I had to trust in that process. And, uh, it, it was, it was hard. I still sort of have my nose and everything that's going on, but I know damn well that they, we send someone out to do the job or doing it right. And the worst thing apparently is that if they don't do it, they know I'm getting on a plane and flying to wherever it is. And I'm going to do, you know, let's make this kick at the can, the kick at the can. Well, because your your company is operating with love and deep care. You care about what's going on. You can't phone it in. You're not going to be satisfied with someone not doing the best that you think that they can do and offering the the client, the the end user, the best of what you can offer. Yeah. And in the last four years and these interventions, every single person's gone to treatment. That's crazy. 
I'm batting a thousand and, uh, you know, in this four years, about 160 something and zero, <laughs> 160, 170 and zero. So, and some of them take a week. Some of them, we start the process and then we leave and then we come back in. If I can keep the family, um, holding their bottom lines, you can get the person to change. You know, they're hoping that oh, the weakest link fails, they get back in, they get a foothold, they can triangulate the rest of the family. If we stop that from happening, it's over. So junior or whoever it is has to get the help he needs. And then once they get the help they need to ignite it, once they bite into the apple, we can see that's happening and we can be damn well ready to help it. It's an interesting job. Um, and like, I feel sometimes that like, wow, I, I never sort of say, I, 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 when people say to me, oh, you saved my life. And I'm like, no, you saved your own life in here. I've not saved anyone's life. And I tell them that and they're always like, oh, you don't think so. But, you know, I tell them, I, I, <laughs> I kind of laugh. I'm like, nah, you don't think I did. I never stash it, but I can make them for one second realize they can do this too. And once they can realize that, because it's hard, being an addict is hard. And disappointing yourself and disappointing everyone around you sucks. And you get into this deep, dark depression and nothing works. And there's a way out of this and uh, that I can be able to help that and get them to understand it will actually change for them. It will work. What's it cannot the, fail. What's the first step with some, let's say someone's struggling with a, you know, it's usually a deep, dark secret, right? Mm -hmm. And they're probably in solitude and yep. they're, and they're, they know that they're not proud of themselves. They know they need help. What is a way for someone who, whose family is not reaching out for, to an interventionist? What, is, what can they do to, what's the first step to see a little light? I, I'm a firm believer. And I, you know, sometimes I just have these passing conversations with people that call me about help for themselves. And then the first thing I do is I want them to go see an addictions therapist as opposed to a family therapist. Um, a line I use all the time drives my people crazy is you don't bring your car to a Chinese restaurant to get repaired. The same thing is when you go to a sit in front of addiction therapist and you think, well, I've been to other psychologists and really they had nothing to say. The addiction guy is now going to start cracking holes in your story very quickly. So we can link, uh, you were drinking that night you were drinking that night and you're smoking dope or you're doing this and it retarded you from either handing an assignment or showing up at work or it starts to, clearly show that your addiction is negatively impacting your life. That's first step. And then if they can sit and trust someone and start to unburden themselves with whatever trauma has happened to them, that's when the magic gets in the mix and they realize, Hey, I'm There's feeling a, a little lighter. Things are going to work out. And then you meet like-minded people that are in the recovery thing. The opposite of addiction is, is connection. You meet like-minded people and you're like, wow, these people are doing the same thing I'm trying to do. And they seem to be doing it. Because it's always like, I, I saw them and they were happy. How can that be? I'm not happy. I haven't been happy in 20 years. How can they be happy? And then that light starts to come through them. It's really, it's an amazing thing to see. And it happens all the time. And so you're saying that first step is, is like, whether it's reaching out uh, a phone, a phone call yeah. to a, yeah. to a, to I do a, a lot of what I call passive interventions where I just have a conversation with someone. Hey, trust me. Do you want to give me three months? Just, just, let's just try three months and let's do some therapy with this guy and let's see what that happens. And they can get it going. Then if you go to an acute care facility to a really good treatment center, they can really unburden you quickly and they can clear the, you know, we, we shit the experiences that negatively impact us, stay in us and behaviors that we think are helping us to avoid, um, pain and suffering, they're actually impeding us from growing as people. All that stuff can be addressed in a proper treatment center. What do you say to, what do you say to, cause I, I've got, I've got a lot of kids listening. And mm -hmm. so what do you say to a 16 year old kid 
family doesn't have very much money. What is, and is, is having some problems. What, what is, is it the same for them? Let's say they can't go to a treatment center. What, adolescence is different but a proper therapist that they can feel safe in and i i I got there's a guy and i can get you that person in any town send me an email i'm gonna help you i I help everyone i really don't say no to anyone if they ask me if this kid would ask me say i'm stuffering i get guys a lot of my instagram i have a big instagram and i get lots of stuff like i'm suffering with this and what should i do and like where what city and i can look for some resources for them and find appropriate ones sometimes i'll reach out to that and get it that's the that's the the goodness you try and spread well that's exactly what we're trying to do because i think even having this kind of conversation is 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 illuminating to a lot of people to see that mm. your experiences potentially my experiences and our behaviors and our learning and the growth and and what you're doing in life is and I'm doing what you're doing in a, in a different way like I'm making music but it's it's about spreading joy and giving hope and doing these things right I just do it in a more artistic way but you're uh, you're mean, you're an artist nonetheless but you're uh, saying I, that a kid who's watching this can reach out to your email address, if we put it in, yeah, yeah, or your absolutely. Instagram, they can they can find me at Hired Sobriety and just do info at Hired Sobriety. You're getting me there, Bob at Hired Sobriety. But the amount of people I reach out to me, like I'll have fifty to sixty DMs a day on my Instagram. Wow. Um, and you know, I try and look at them. I have someone that works on my Instagram, and often will sometimes pare them down to let's see what we can do with this. That's job one, and then. Um, not everyone's going to fit in the cookie cutter of the recovery zone. And if they can't afford it, there's got to be resources at a local level that we can find to help people with. And that's the part that we're trying to help. Like when people, when people, when's the best time to get help the moment they ask for it. So family's like, Oh, you know, junior asked for help, but we couldn't get him in a place or it's three weeks to get him into a treatment, but there's a quicker way of doing this. But if they can just feel like they're part of something that makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference in their, in their outcome. And uh, like, I, I met someone last night, I was at dinner and you know, she's a single mom. And she was like saying to me and my, my friend said to me, you know, Bob does this meeting on Tuesdays and Thursday nights online. And she asked me, can I go to it? And I said, yeah, I've got people from all over the place. Like I got people from Europe and they're, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays, uh, eight o'clock Eastern time. I said, there's people from California, there's people from Miami, there's people from all over the place. And that's the, recovery meeting that I'm running today. And, uh, you know, this is just that. And what's interesting is when they're in there and they're messing, they're DMing each other in the group, there's a young person, there's no one new and they're, they're reaching out to each other and you see the effect that they start to realize they're not alone and you're not a sack of shit and you're going to be okay. And just trust the process because we become so caught up in our own garbage that we think we're going to be garbage for the rest of our lives. Would, would you say that, would you say that, Literally every single person in the world has some kind of recovery to do. Yep. Right. And I think that people that are in recovery and realize they don't want to go like if you practice the step work and stuff, it's like, I can't go to bed angry. I need to clean, like re let's take stock on what happened today. And uh, I didn't like the way I spoke with Mish today. And I got to call him back and just send him a text and say, hey, look, I'm sorry if we had a disagreement and people, that's not human nature. You know, like no, but learning fuck, how it to feels live good. that way is it feels really, good when you do it. Really, hmm? it feels amazing when you do it. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's unburdening yourself. It's actually you're keeping care of your side of the street, but you might be helping the other side because a lot of petty resentment turned into giant things they didn't need to be. And sometimes my disease of perception tells me that something that I believe was a major slight against me, the person that gave it to me had no malice or intent. He just said something, a flippant remark or something. And I turned it into this. 
because my mind took it and turned it into something it certainly was because you have a very creative high energy yeah. yes. beast mode mind and that's exactly. that's what it is and, and that's the the disease of perception which we all have we all have at different times no one doesn't have it so becoming aware of how to fix that and tune myself up with that that's important and so you'd say that we are a constant work in progress. We sure as hell are. There's no, there's better, no, there's you, no, there's it, no pill it, you can take. There's no class you can, you can nope. take. It's growth 101 and it comes every with day. Rinse, wash, repeat. And it's a day in, day out thing. And you get today and you live in today and you try and not do it wrong. And we're all making mistakes. And are we able to correct them? Are we able to help ourselves? It's that easy or it's that difficult depending on how you yeah, look at and, it. Yeah, and well I'm sure that like anything the beginning is the hardest part, but once yeah. you get that motor running, you you start to learn how to adjust yeah. in real look, time. When you started doing exercise and you didn't know anything about nutrition, you didn't know anything about how to really get your workout refined to work exactly for you. You learned a lot of different techniques, some of them you kept, some of them you threw away quickly. Totally. But you kept working and refining and helping and do that. How many episodes can a 55-year-old man watch of Judge Judy without thinking he's wasting his time? <laughs> you know, fuck, I can lie on the couch all day and let the world pass me by. Or I could get involved and actively part of my emotional well-being, of my spiritual well-being, of my financial well-being. I could be an active part in that. And that doesn't mean you work 24 hours a day or sometimes it's you got to put in the most work you can. But if you're allowed to be outside of yourself, because the self guy is the one that wants to watch Judge Judy four episodes a day. Uh, there's nothing good that comes from that. It's just like the guy that's going to the bar at you know midnight. Nothing good comes from that. You know? Yeah. Oh, I picked up a girl. It no, it ended sideways. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Game. I'm sure it was promising. You know? Yeah. I'm sure exactly. that 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 brought you to where you wanted to go. Yeah, and I mean, like we we're, we're I'm a genuinely happy person. And I think a lot of people see me and they're like, what's he so fucking happy about? Well, I, uh, I enjoy the life that I lead. That's for sure. Well, there's, there's, you're, you're just another example of someone who, who adopted the, the sober life, which is the mindful life, which is the, the life where you take responsibility for yourself, right? Yeah. It, where you, yeah. you, where you, it's like, I say to you, instead of pointing the finger, you just turn it at you. Yeah. And then you start working. Oh yeah. Where's my right? blame in this situation that's befalling me right now? Yeah. What did I have? I had an active role in this and that active role might've been something bad happened to me or how after something bad happened to me, how I ingested it. I, I think I tell people the story all the time. If you're standing at the corner and a bus drives by and it goes through a puddle and sprays you, you're going to go home and change immediately. If something unpleasant happens to your emotional self, how come you don't just go home and change immediately? How come you want to live in the dirty clothes? So do, do you think like I, I do you think that this is gonna be a mindset and an understanding of ourselves that will be taught that because like I said, we're still primitive, right? We're coming from you know, uh, I think, the, like, I think the they boomers should teach or codependency. You, codependency should be taught to everyone. You could pick up that book, Codependent No More. I have an audio version of it and I listen to it just to refresh myself because I have unhealthy relationships with people, places, and things. And I have expectations that I set to certain people, places, and things that are not healthy. And then when you become aware of that you're doing that, that's the codependent piece, which I believe drives a lot of my addiction issues. And it's like, ah, oh, my life would be different if, you know, Misha liked me more, or if this or that, like all this stupidity, yeah. all this orchestra that's going in my mind. How about I keep my side of the strike clean and I try not to have unhealthy uh, you know, uh, uh, unhealthy latched on uh, appreciation to people, places, and things. It, it's it's not 
Sometimes it's really unhealthy, but people like, oh, I'm not a codependent. We all are. We all have a version of it and being aware of what that is, uh, it helps. And so what's that book called? Codependent No More. Codependent No More. Uh, codependent. Yeah, codependent. codependent. Yeah. Um, it's funny. Like we're friends with Nick Rose, the writer, vice. He's going to uh, be on, he's going to be on yeah. in uh, three weeks. Okay. And he will tell you that he came into recovery. Like, oh, my uncle Bob's his well-known sobriety coach, but he was struggling with his alcoholism and stuff. And I'll never forget. It was December 27th of 2018. And uh, he came in and said, yeah, I can't do this. Uh, 2017, excuse me. And I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, I'm done. I have the gene. I know it. That was pretty heady stuff for a guy. Like he was like, I know I have what you have. What do I do? And he got himself an addictions therapist, started going to meetings and he read codependent no more. And he realized, man, my addiction is being driven by my codependency. And he was able to put those pieces together. I'm sure he'll tell you his version, but when I see someone able to apply you know, he has a degree in psychology, has a law degree, he's a smart kid, but he applied this and he was able to really turbocharge. You remember, he couldn't do a push up when you met him. And yeah. now he's in crazy shape. Yeah. You know, it was all that discipline that he instilled in his life. And I watched this kid bloom into the man he is now. He turned 33 on Halloween and watched him become the person he thought he could never be. And he's very happy doing it. Man, there's a light coming out of him. And I look at it going like that. And he said, you know, it's pretty interesting because Uncle Bob knows how to do this. And uh, he followed. It's little pieces of advice here and there. And uh, it's a bit of tutelage. And uh, he took it to another level. And he's really um, he's really doing what he's meant to do. He has a superpower, right? Yes. I feel like the people who he's have- He's just at the precipice of all this stuff happening. He's going to explode. Yeah, and yeah, he's yeah. just there. And he's so ready for it. Oh, yeah. He's he, so And he's born, he's born for it. He, like, he, he grew up, he went to a specific kind of school yeah. with all <laughs> kinds of people- who knew what they wanted to be, whose parents knew what they wanted to be. Right. And not that his parents were like that, but when you're surrounded by that, you think that that's you too. Right. And you know, and, and, and he went, Hey, he went all the way. He oh, graduated he, law school. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, he, I'm not writing the bar. He, <laughs> I'm not, I failed it once. I'm not doing it again. And like most people, it's the parents of people. You're here. You have to do it. And his family was the wherewithal to say, what's going to make you happy and go do it. Yeah. And now he's, he's, he's having these conversations with all kinds of unbelievable people. He's just like his fucking uncle Bob. It's a beautiful thing. And and really what's the track record of people getting sober and life getting worse? None. (laughs) Right. I've never seen someone turn their life over to an absent lifestyle and work and refine on being themselves and say like, wow, I got to get that stinking thinking out of my head because it's my stinking thinking. And they've turned it into anything other than to something beautiful and something prosperous. Like never uh, seen it. They don't go backwards. There's a bunch of celebrities who've done it. Like guys like Travis yeah. Barker that I've looked up yeah. to for my whole life. He got sober yeah. and, and like his career exploded after. And you thought yeah. he was oh the drummer of Blink. Could he get any no. better of this? A lot better at producing stuff. You know, <laughs> a lot producing stuff, stuff uh, clothing yeah. companies. Uh, he's on every song, you know, in the world. Yeah. Zach yeah. Efron got sober. There's all these people who are. Yeah. Amazing. They've, they've all gone to the right way. Like Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt's story is interesting because here we have Bradley Cooper, who was not a superstar. Brad was a superstar. Brad Cooper was not the, was not the Brad you thought of. But when he suffered, he went over and said, look, I got 12 years and my life got a lot easier. And he showed him. He gave it to him. And he, once you ignite it, once you start, your brain synapses are working properly and you're like, wow, my reactions are a lot better to the world around me. And you realize, wow, uh, this is impressive. And like it, for me, I gave up smoking. I smoked cigarettes like three packs a day in my first year of recovery. They came out of the pack. Lit. I was a terrible smoker. And 
my my brother-in-law said something to me like, oh, well, I'm glad you gave up the booze and the dope, but you know, you still smoke, it's killing you. I had no argument, he was right. Vince Rose, and I uh, I took my, my one-year chip and I put out my cigarettes, gave my pack to a friend of mine, and I never smoked again. Wow. And when people tell me, oh, it's worse than heroin, listen, I shit my pants and threw up all over myself for five days when I gave up dope. Um, that wasn't my experience with nicotine. Um, and I felt like I was like, it was so psychologically binding to my head. This is going to be the greatest fight ever. I just did push-ups every time I wanted a cigarette. I swear to God, the first three days I was walking around like <laughs> I couldn't straighten my arms out, but I didn't complain. Jack. And my sponsor said, nobody put a gun to your head for you to smoke. Nobody said, don't bitch and moan about this. Be a man, pick yourself up and move on. And then at three weeks, you realize you've, you've, that's the coveted time that you realize I haven't used a cigarette. And you're like, wow. And that in my first year, you know, you're so myopically focused on getting one year of sobriety and getting that one year medallion. Well, in the second year, no one's giving that free pass to you. And now you're doing things for yourself and giving up smoking propelled me. I felt an empowerment that I'd never felt before in my life. I was like, I was able to set a course and do what needed to be done for this. Another thing well. on your checklist gives you that dopamine, gives yeah. you that fucking yeah. all the, the cocktails that you need. The Ain't natural no ones. high enough, you know? That's yeah. It. And it's like, and like I think every, every, every human body is a drug addict. We're constantly looking for oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine. Um, there's the other one that I'm forgetting. They're the main four. But we're always in search of this. But if we, if we can get our high, but also get nourishment from it, right? Like if you yeah. eat sweet potato, you're going to get, yeah. you're going to get the, okay, it won't be like a donut high, but you're not going to have the crash either, but you're getting nourishment. You can watch judge Judy, or you can go have a conversation with someone, right? Mm -hmm. And you're partaking in it. And then you're getting the, like, even now you're, you're not here in the room, but no. the fact that we're sharing and we're focused and we're challenging each other, you know, because we, we want to be present. We want to say the right thing. We want to be in the moment. There's, mm -hmm. there's a good vibe. No way you're walking away from this or I am feeling shittier than when we sat down. No, no absolutely. fucking chance. Actually, I, I have an affinity towards, I've often thought that I've like, admired you for in turmoil, like the shit at the fan. You had a massive, what they call a major event emotionally happened to you, losing your father at a young age. And you took that, you and your brother, and you did not, blow, you, you, you learned from it and you grew from it. And I think that that I, 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 I have nothing but respect for you for that. I think that that's fantastic. And uh, adversity brought you here and, uh, and you brought here on your, on your terms. I think that you, a lot of people will fold and that will be their grandma. Oh, my dad died when I was young and I never got over it. Your dad wanted you to survive. Your dad wanted you to thrive and your dad wanted to be a complete human being. How come that's not the brief I took? I can make it self-centered and go, I'm a victim here. It ruined our whole lives. Nothing was ever the same again. Or we built on it. And my respect to you is because you did that. I you appreciate and that. And I, I can I give it to uh, the people who are around me, my brother and my mother. Because at first, my brother was the one who took the took the reins. My young, mm -hmm. he was 22. <laughs> yeah. He was 22. And I was just kind of zonked out because it was such like a dramatic shift from one day to the next that I was, uh, it's almost like I was re- processing or downloading or I don't know what it was. So I was going through the motions for the first six months. Like I was going to the work and I was doing it's the stuff. It's a seismic shift in the way your family operates. And, and I was shaking the hands and I was, I was doing this. But my brother was the one who, who was the machine at the beginning. Like he, and then he got, he, he said, yo, dude, uh, 
wake up, wake up, time to rock. And I wasn't, I wasn't drowning myself or anything. I was just numb, you know, but I, I can't take all the credit because he was, he was a powerhouse. But the morning process for you was different to your brothers, but nevertheless, nonetheless, you didn't turn it into, well, it just got all this money and they just blew it up. You didn't do that. You did the right thing. And that should be commended. And you yeah, know, well, I you didn't do it, the thing you thought everyone thought you'd do. You oh, did the right thing. Totally. Well, because it was it's always different on the outside than what it is on the inside. Correct. Right. The grass so is greener. The yeah. Grass so like greener. people think, you know, they 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 saw this the the house, they saw the cars, they saw this, and they imagine a bunch of things, but they don't know what was going on behind the scenes. They didn't know how uh, we were raised by our parents. The 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 discipline and having to earn things and the tough love and all those things that. I think gave us the power when my dad, you know, went off into the fifth dimension, he had instilled in us a, a discipline, a work ethic, uh, a self-respect of never yep. being satisfied and mm-hmm. not settling for anything that, that kept us going. And my mom was a machine too. Mm-hmm. And so we had really great foundation growing up. And again, I'm just saying there was a crossroad. Yeah. Yeah. And we you t- and your brother both took the right, not one of you, both of you did the right thing. Well, I'll and take it and I'll pre- I appreciate it. I appreciate yeah. it. We have a lot, we have, you know, I look at the, it took me a long time to figure out a lot of things that you figured out 25 years before I did. <laughs> you know, I, I, it took me a while to figure out, like I had, I, I, I have a wonderful family and I had, my addiction kept me so detached from all of them and lovely parents and great family. Like I had everything there. It was right in front of me and I was dangerously close to losing it all um, because I didn't believe it was fulfilling any of my needs. And I needed to have some sort of, I needed to bring some skin in the game in order to get better at being me. And in order for me to be a positive impact, I needed to say I was going to do things and do them. Uh, my word, my, like I said, some discipline, some, some, some accountability. And to, in order to do that, I had to go through all these different steps and, Slowly but surely I did. It's the same thing though. People ask me, how'd you get here? Well, it, it took a lot of work. It took a lot of lonely, nobody's, nobody's there cheering you on. There's no fanfare. It's the grind and you go do it. And, um, and you, you come keep out the other going. side, a better person out, for And it. you came out the other side, dude. You, you kept yes. going, you kept ripping. And I'm still ripping now. You're still like ripping. I'm still hard at it. Like so, my friends say, man, you work a lot. The phone doesn't stop ringing. You're always on. But you thrive it. on well, it. That's the job. Right. And I th- love the, I love the, I, you know, I deep down, I love the burning building. A uh, car crash happens on the side of the road. Please. I'm a first responder. I'll jump into that car. I'll pull people out. That's my human nature. I actually get high from that. I really, you know, I'm going to get a police scanner and just run around looking for things to do. Let me save the day. But in, I think we all want to do it. It's, um, I'm not paralyzed from it. I do it. I can execute. It's really And you're odd. there because like a bad situation. I can you're, like a fi- you're like a firefighter and you're, yeah. you're always ready, right? You're, yeah. you're always on call. And that's, how you, time. that's, how, that's how you mm-hmm. operate in life. It's... Mm-hmm. If, if you're distracted or you have to worry about toxic relationships or worrying about where to get your next high or all these things, you're never present. You're never looking around to see if anyone needs something. You're never, yeah. you're never looking around to see if you need something. Right. Right? Because it I'm goes- fulfilling any of my needs by trying to be someone I'm not. Um, you know, and that's people, like I know people that 
they're, oh, what do I do here? Oh, I, I am committed to whatever needs to be done. It's getting done now. I don't overthink it. I just go do it. And that's for some people, like my sisters always say, I don't know how you can do this. Like they're impressed because they say you just go at it. And I'm like, yeah, but that's the time. Do you want me to wait around and call my, like it's on fire. We're happening now. I don't know why that's something that I had inside me that I did not know I had until I started doing what I was doing. Yeah. Well, from my outside perspective, looking at you, it's like, you always had this beast, this awesome gift in you. You just didn't, it's just like, you didn't know what the vessel was. My old friends tell me if you could ever channel the energy you had. Yeah. Cause it's it's, it's like, it's like a sun that you have inside of you and you just figured out how to use it. But I had forgotten how to use it. I was just like, it was my mediocrity level was, uh, this is good enough. I don't need to. But I had a lot of successful friends that told me, man, if you could ever channel this energy, it would work. And now they're the same people that tell me, you know, I think Paul Massey, he sends me an email every now and then. He used to own a club in the West Island Bourbon Street and stuff. And he's a dear friend of mine, but he's been really kind to me over the years and saying like, I'm so impressed by this. And I'm like, "Ah, I'm just trying to get up to, you know, make up for lost time and trying to get better at being me. That's really it. And I'm not trying to do this to impress anyone else. I'm just trying to do it for me and hopefully help some people along the way. Well, you're doing it, Bob. You're making me happy (laughs) and you make countless families happy. Yes. And And I will leave you with this. Today, I went to the IV lounge here and got some oxytocin in me. Thordal, I've had back issues. Um, I've been going through, like I've had, look, I I had COVID at the end of March. In end of July, I find out I have prostate cancer. It's the easiest type you can get. So it's not a bad thing. It's still a traumatic thing to be told that. Get these surgeries, get these procedures done. And I'm still not out of the woods there. And then three weeks ago, I had to have a nasal canal lift, which they had to remove implants, was terrible. Um, and all these things have happened to me. And, and look how look I'm how bright and shiny and you working. are. Huh? And look, look at you, nothing is face. When I bumped yeah. into you in the road, yeah. when you showed me your new bike, you're like, oh, by the way, I have prostate cancer. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, what? And I, I, I checked up on you two weeks later and I said, hey, you alive? And then you sent me a picture of these teeth and your bloody yeah. face. And like, I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah. And then I figured, hey, uh, and, and you know, my sister Anne, and I have two sisters. And when my mom passed, they became my moms. I have two moms. I had three, apparently. Now I'm down to two. But my sister's like, how do you keep doing this? Go, what do you mean? She's like, she goes, aren't you? Wor-? I said, no, like, this is an obstacle. I'm going to go over it. And I'm not going to wait around and ask myself why this is happening to me. I'm just going to get fixed what's in front of me. And it feels like I'm playing catch up. I've been sleeping a lot and really taking care of myself. Meanwhile, I, uh, that week after I did this mouth surgery, I did two interventions that week. It was terrible. I was like at wit's end. Um, and then I fly down to Miami, get tested. I went and people ask me, how can you go without quarantine? I get tested. When I leave on Friday here, I'll have an antibody test, an antigen test, and a COVID test. The antibody and the antigen test, 40 minutes after you do them here, you'll have your result. So I'll have that card with me. And then you, when you come into Montreal, I'll have another test done there because I'm on the list of people that have had the disease. So they give you a rapid test as well. And I'm only going to be in Montreal for a week, uh, go to the dentist, have another procedure, and then fly back here on, I think, the 12th. I don't remember the date. Okay. So, so you're a busy man, even with all yeah. this like recovery, like yeah. actual other kind of recovery that you're doing. Yeah. But yeah. you're, so you said you're not out of the woodwork yet, 
But well, I, I think I am, but I mean, it's still there's a process of healing and getting better. Like I'm still, having, I, I I don't have any problems peeing. That's often the situation. I got man prostate problem, but it's just learning. And I have like some pains that are inside me, which are just a healing process. And you know, of course, I want to be better 100. percent I did the procedure. Why am I not 100 percent yet? Well, because time has to heal some of this. And and so and, uh, my next my that. next question is like. Obviously, right now you're you're dealing with it. You're doing what you got to do. But later on, or have you started looking though? Is there something that I can do that maybe stressed my system? Is this uh, it, like you know causes or like lifestyle? Because you're a fucking high octane. Did, yeah. did that couldn't have helped. Um, I don't know. The doctors <laughs> seem to think that it was like there's never been any cancer scares in my immediate family. We have bad hearts. My heart apparently is good, <laughs> but they, uh, you, there's no rhyme or reason. I don't know if the doctor didn't get into that sort of stuff. And I get like I do two blood tests a year. I'm pretty proactive on my own health um, to try and avoid this from happening. But like, well, again, like you said earlier, you're here's proactive. the situation. They, you have the you get told this is what's happening. Well, I have to go through it. I can't. Get yeah, mad and this I is not the time to much. figure out why it's dealing with yeah. it. And maybe later you'll, yeah. you'll try to maybe later. I'll figure out what the hell happened, but they can't tell anything right now. But it's you just, look, you look healthy I'm... as fuck. You look yeah. great. You sound great. And yeah. I didn't know that they can inject oxytocin into, I didn't know oxytocin was like, I know I it's a neuro trap. You can go get that today. I had that. I've been having situations with my um, lower back since this prostate stuff. So they give you a drip of Thoradol, which takes the pain away. It would allow me to get back on the mat and start stretching some more and start feeling better. So yeah. Wait, so is it, is it oxytocin, the neurotransmitter or Oxycontin, the heroin Uh, thing? No, 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 it's not a, it's not a pain med. It's oxytocin. So it's like, uh, so it's like, it's like you're getting the, you're getting the love drip. Is that what it is? Like you feel warm and fuzzy right after they give it to you. Fuck. Oh yeah. yeah, Love that. Like it's a, it tastes like a, it feels like a cuddle. Yeah, I'm sending you the uh, link right now, and you can order this next time you're in uh, town. I can. Uh, I, I know they have it in Montreal. In Miami, I know they have it in Montreal. So you're going to be all set. It's in Miami, obviously. I do it here, but they can get it in Montreal. This IV Wellness uh, Center is popping up all over the place. All right. I do uh, the NAD therapy, which is the uh, nitride. Uh, it's the cell, the uh, fountain of youth, if they will. But it's really good at regenerating your, your cells. Your, your mitochondrial your health. That. I've been doing that since the cancer. I've been having those things. You're a fucking steady. biohacker. Yeah. Have you been eating a little better? Yeah, I feel wonderful. My energy levels are up. I feel good. Good for you. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to hear it. What the hell? I'm happy to hear it, Bob. All right. And I'm uh, (laughs) I'm very happy that you came on this podcast. You are an illuminating number seven guest. So you're 007. And seven, by the way, is my lucky number. I was born on the 7th of February, so I didn't know that. Holy shit. So seven's been my lucky number my whole life. And uh, I was born on February 7th, 65. And so, Bob, before you go... Uh, where can people find you? HiredSobriety.com. Um, Google my name, Bob Marier. I love this. I tell people, Google my name. Fuck yeah. Pages and pages of me. Um, and that's a good, good start. And like I said, my Instagram, it's interesting. I got a big Instagram, but I stopped feeding it twice a day. Okay. Um, which is, I don't think I've posted anything since Black Lives Matter. <laughs> All right, fair enough. And it's just the way it's such a beast that you have to feed. And I started looking at it as a popularity contest and how much content really drives my business. And it wasn't much. I get a lot of requests for stuff I can't possibly articulate. Okay. Um, but that's what we, we try and, you know, that's you what you live and learn, you live yeah, and learn, live and learn. And so adapt. I, I turned it down. It was like a half a million followers. And now I'm just under 400,000. And I'm like, okay, I'm good with this. I don't need it to be, um, 
you got you got bigger like, fish to fry. Vice got Vice, the Vice documentary on my life on their on the Vice's website, which is no longer running, but they ran it and they ran it in a billion countries in different languages. So every time it played, I was like, "What's going on?" I was just like, blowing. "So is it is it available somewhere to watch?" It's, yeah, just Google my name and YouTube, and there it is. Very you cool. Know, so if I if I find it, life. if I find it, I'll I'll include it in the uh, in the credits of this. Not hard to find. All Not, right, beautiful. Well, Bob, once again, thanks very much for hanging out. You're you, welcome. my Thank friend, you for having me. You are a time traveler. I am now. I feel better already. Fuck Can we go yes. back in time? I want to get a few things out of the way. Oh, you, you already did. You already did. Well, <laughs> all, all right, right dude. Thank you, Mish. Have yourself a lovely day. All the best. All Let the best. Know. See you soon. See you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.